And so this week we're continuing. This is part two of our, our membership study. And so if, if you weren't with us last week, we asked the question, the bigger question, what's a healthy church? How would you define it? How would you describe it? What, what makes a church healthy? Uh, and what I argued last week was that a healthy church uh, is made up of healthy church members. And so the health of the church is directly tied to the health of its members. And so membership is, is what we're going to focus on. Um, what is a healthy church member? And so this morning as we continue, I'm going to ask the question, continue asking the question, what, what type of church members make up a healthy church? And so last week we said a functioning member, a functioning member is what, what makes a healthy church member. And so we said healthy churches are made up of functioning body parts, um, which we said last week, my hope for us as a church is that we all, every member here might function, not just be put part of this body to be stagnant or to do nothing, but to function in our God-given roles. And so as we as a church pursue health, we need every body part to be functioning. Um, and so actually, I thought I'd share this. Uh, yesterday, I had a, a bit of a senior moment. I felt like I could relate to some of you um, you know, I was just, I was putting on my tennis shoes like I do every day, uh, and in slipping on my tennis shoe, I pulled a muscle in my lower back, right? So it wasn't, it wasn't my best moment, especially as my kids see me laying on the floor like, are you okay? I said, just get away from me. Just let me sit. Um, but my point being, if, if your back, your lower back is not functioning, it affects everything so that you can't, you can't even sit right um, and so last week, we looked at how functioning members make up a healthy body. And so if you missed last week, we, we do post our sermons online. You can listen to um, or read, read the first uh, chapter in this book because he, he makes uh, a similar argument that I made uh, last week. So, but this morning, we're not talking about functioning members. This, this morning, what we're going to talk about, the second characteristic is a church member who's committed to the unity of the church. So unity is going to be the, the second mark of a healthy church member. So a healthy church member uh, is a church member who's committed to unifying, to being a, a source of unity uh, in the church. And so a healthy church member is someone who works towards establishing and maintaining unity in the body. And so a healthy church is made up of members who are committed to maintaining, who value unity and don't take it for granted and says, so we'll see, unity itself is, is the Christian standard. Uh, Christian unity is, is one of the most basic things about Christianity. Part of what makes Christianity Christianity is that it, it unites people. Um, and the basis of Christian unity is Jesus himself, as we'll see. I mean, if you think about it, what is a local church, it's a group of individuals who've put their faith in Christ. Right? So, so you shouldn't be a member of a local church if you're not a Christian, Christians are those who have put their faith in Jesus, who make up the local church, and, and they've decided to join with other members of the local church for the sake of loving Jesus together, for serving him, um, for carrying out their purposes. And so Christ is, or at least ought to be, the focus and mission of every local church. And so that is what unites. It's not age. It's not common interest. It's not workplace. It's none of these things. It's not even like a bright future. What unifies a local church ought to be Christ himself. So that any Christian who loves Jesus should find a place in a local church. And so when you have a, a, a church where disunity starts to spread or a church starts to, to, to break at the seams or starts dividing, when a church splits, that actually is saying something about Christ who is supposed to unite the church. 
And so a divided or a split church sends a message. And so maybe some of you have seen this firsthand when you have members who don't value unity, when you have people who who are part of the church who don't actively seek to maintain unity, or you have people who actually intentionally work against unity. I've met those people. When you have those people in a local church, the church is going to move away from unity. I mean, Paul will have nothing to do with a person who creates division. I mean, he'll say in Titus, warn them once, warn them twice, then, then be done with them, because division is a great threat, and it, and it attacks the very heart of the church, which is its union in Christ. And so when you have people who are, who are not maintaining and working towards unity, you have people who must understand the very nature of church membership and the church itself. And so what we'll see is that real, solid unity that's found in Christ is non-negotiable for each and every local church. It's the very heart of the church. Unity is the very heart of the church. And so we'll see that this morning. So if, you're, uh, if you want a su- sentence to summarize um, this sermon, it would be healthy church members work to maintain the unity that Christ has already established. Okay, so healthy church members, this is, this is what I want to be, this is what I want every one of you who, who are a member of this church, healthy church members work to maintain the unity that Christ has already established. Okay, so we'll see that. So, so I want you leaving here this morning asking, well, how can I work to maintain the unity that's already been established? Well, we're going to look at Ephesians 4, so turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Because these, these few verses at the beginning of Ephesians 4 are going to be the, the passage that we, that we work through in seeing this, the, the call to unity. So Ephesians 4, and I'm just going to read verses 1 through 6 of Ephesians 4. So beginning there, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord... I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 4, there's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Verse 5, one Lord. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he goes in verses 8 and following into the distribution of God's gifts to each Christian. But let, let's pray uh, as we look through these, these verses. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, I pray that this would be a church of unified members, members who are committed to the unity of the church, and I pray that I would lead towards unity. Uh, and so, Father, I pray that this, 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 this sermon this morning, the, these next 30 minutes would be used um, to create a, a desire of maintaining unity within the body. And so forgive us for being sources of division uh, would you help us to honor you and to walk worthy of our calling and maintain the, the bond of, of unity that we have as, as Christians who have united ourselves to one another in this body? It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So we're going to work through the, the three sections, the three headings. We're going to see the basis of unity. 
then the necessity of that unity, and then the maintenance of unity. And so those are the three sections that we're going to see just from, from these passages. And the third point, the maintenance of unity, we're going to talk about some specific ways for us as church members to maintain unity. So, so the basis of that unity is what we'll see first. And so here in Ephesians 4, although we're, we're jumping right into the middle of this letter, we're still able to get a good idea of what, of what the Apostle Paul is saying here in these seven verses. And so the logic of verses 1 through 7 gives a foundation for unity in the church. And so to understand that, look, at, look, look first at the, the last couple verses. So look at verse 4 and 5 and 6. So, so Paul, in verses 1 through 3, calls us to something. That's going to be the, the necessity of unity, but, but the basis of that is verses 4 through 6. So look at 4 through 6. Listen to the language of unity here. So verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And so this language is that of unity. There's, there's a oneness that forms the foundation of the Christian faith in the Christian church. There's a, a unity. That, that's, there's one, there's one, there's one. And this unity is necessary and essential for the local Christian church. And at the center of this, and we can't miss this, at the center of it all is the cornerstone Christ himself. And so the unity of the church is founded upon, is built upon Christ himself, who is one. So Christ isn't divided. There aren't two Christs. There's one Christ in every church, every body that has, has joined together to worship that one Christ is one because that church has been united to him. He's the foundation. And so the church, every church, every local church by its very nature is one. It's united because Christ is the source of that church. And so it must be united. And so the body, the, the church, the body of Christ, though there's many members, like we talked about last week, it's still one body. And so to be part of Christ, to be united to him by faith, which is, as we said last week, that's the definition of being a Christian, someone who's been united to Christ, to be a Christian is to be part of his body. And so for a, 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 an example would be just like my hands must feed my mouth, right? There's a unity there, right? When I'm eating food, I know that, that what's, what's on the fork in this hand has to travel to my mouth, or just like my feet must, must be united to my eyes to know where I'm going, right? There's a unity there. It's all, it's all working together, right? That's the whole, the whole point of the illustration that Paul used in body parts and one body, many parts. The body of Christ must be united. There must be one purpose that drives it. And so Christ, as the foundation, the church is united around worshiping Christ. There's a oneness because every member of the church has been joined to Christ. And so when a local church is united, when it is, when it is functioning as one body with one purpose in one accord, it is simply living out its identity. And so, so it's not abnormal, it shouldn't be abnormal for a church to be united in its pursuit of, of ministry and its purposes. It's simply living out its identity, who it is, what it is, which also means, and not only in that sense where it's pursuing unity, where it's living out its identity, it also means that when a church is divided or is dividing, it's living against its purpose. It's pursuing an identity that is contrary to its very nature. And so you see a church that claims to be based on, on the love and worship of Christ that's divided Right, it is actually showing, displaying that it is not based on Christ because a church that's based on Christ is united. 
and unified. That's its nature. And so the basis of the unity of the church is Christ himself. This is earlier in Ephesians 2. Paul talked about this, this one new man that, that God has created in Christ, where, where what were once different is now one. There's a new man, a new body. There's one body, and that's the body of Christ. So Christ is the basis of unity. Well, then second, let's look at the necessity of this unity. Or, or we could say, how does Paul call us to this unity? What, what are the, the, what's the call here? So look there in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. Paul lays out the, the call or the necessity of unity. So he's, he said the basis, and so when he gets to verse 4, he's already said, hey, you've, here's, how you, here's how you live united. And the reason, the basis of that is verse 4, 5, and 6. And so as we jump up to, to verses 1 through 3, Paul's simply saying, here's, here's how you do it. Here's how you live out this unity. Here's how you pursue it. And so verse 1, I, therefore, prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And so that's, that's the first exhortation. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so you notice Paul is exhorting the Christians to something here. He's calling them specifically, verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. Do you see that, verse 1? I urge you Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That's the imperative. That's the command of this section. Paul wants them to walk a certain way. He wants their lives to look a certain way. And so the command is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. And that calling is what Paul spent chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians defining and explaining. And so he says walk worthy of the calling. Right? Walk worthy. Live in light of what's happened to you. So in verse, chapters 1 through 3, he's explaining, you've been saved. Here's what God's done to save you. Now, live in light of that. It's not enough just to say, hey, I'm stopping at chapter 3. God has saved you. Now you're good. No, he says, you've been saved for a purpose, and that's to walk differently, to live a different life. And so Paul calls every Christian to walk differently. And so if you're a Christian, your life bears fruit that, that marks a difference between an old you and a new you. And, and what, we have to, what, what I want you to see is that this call is not for some special class of Christian. It's not only the, the privileged few who, who have to walk worthy of their calling. Every Christian is called to walk worthy of this calling, from the youngest to the oldest. Every Christian, if you're here and you're a Christian, you are commanded to walk worthy of of the call that you've received. Walk worthy of the name Christian. And what's important for our sake this morning is to recognize that this calling is comprehensive. It's part of your identity. Living the way that Paul is going to explain in verses 2 and 3 extends to all of one's life. Right? So it's who you are. If you're a new creation in Christ, you have a new calling and a new life and a new walk. And that's, that's the Christian life. That's who you are. And so you pursue the, the, these things that Paul lays out. So, so what would it look like? Verse 2, here's how you pursue this, this, this calling. Here's how you live. Here's how you walk it out. You do it with humility and gentleness, patience. You bear with one another in love, and you're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And so notice all of these characteristics. These are characteristics of the Christian's walking. They all assume that the Christian life involves others. So all the characteristics notice require relationships with others to be on display. And so if, worthy, if walking worthy of your calling looks like humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another, 
then walking worthy of your calling means that you do it with other people. All of these require relationships with others to, to be displayed. And so Paul's assuming that walking worthy of your calling means doing life walking with other Christians. And so I can say I'm humble, but until you see me interact with others in relationship with others, you, you will probably be able to say, well, I don't know if you're humble or not. I mean, I could say I'm gentle, but unless it's displayed in my relationships with others, I'm not really gentle. I, I can be, say I'm patient, but until that's, that's tested in, in a relational context, I don't really know if I'm patient. I, I can think I'm, I'm bearing with others in love, but, but unless someone makes me have to bear, I don't really know if I am, right? So, so mutual relationships among Christians are, are what Paul's talking about here in walking worthy of the calling, and while this certainly extends to those outside the church, Paul's context is talking about life within the body, with, with, with other members. He's calling Christians to, to live differently, and that's going to be displayed in relationships among Christians. And so God's calling is not to a private relationship with him, but to a life in community with other believers. That's why we think that the local church, that's, that's why it's a good idea, because God has created Christians to live in community with other Christians in the context of a local church. And so instead of having a body of believers characterized by, by pride and selfishness and anger and, and these other sinful manifestations, Paul says that Christian lives, that the Christian walk, ought to be characterized by these things, humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another. That's how Christians live with others. And again, these are just normal Christian traits, normal Christian characteristics. There's nothing extraordinary about them. They, they are supernatural in the sense that they're, they're only enabled by the Spirit. And so they are supernatural. Don't hear me say that anyone can do this, but they're not for a super spiritual class of this privileged few. These are just the, the, the requirements, the calling of every Christian. I mean, I thought about Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. You maybe learned a song when you were a kid about it. The fruit of the Spirit, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is fruit of the Spirit that, that is produced in the life of the Christian, and it's produced in the life of every Christian. And so I know this is repetitive, but I want to make sure that, that we're on the same page here, because we, we, it's important to recognize where we are in, in Ephesians 4 and how Paul understands worthy walking. It's, it's what every Christian's called to, and it's important for our purposes here, because look at verse 3. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 in continued flow with, with where he's going, he writes, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so again, this is a continuation of what Paul's been saying. So he's saying Christians who walk worthy of their calling are all these things, which are just normal Christian characteristics, but it also includes maintaining the unity of the Spirit, which is also a normal Christian thing. It's what Christians do. And so a unifying church member, but what, what, what I'm, I'm, I'm praying for us all to be, I'm praying for myself to be, a unifying church member is someone who simply is living his or her Christian life in, in the way that they're called to. Someone who's walking worthy of his or, own, his or her own calling. And so being concerned with you, the unity of the church is not the special calling of a few. It's the call of every Christian. And so as we step back and look at verses 2 and 3, Right, there's a connection between, between all of these manifestations of worthy walking. 
And the connection is that only when, when the, the Christian is committed to walk with humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another, only when one is pursuing that can one then maintain unity or work towards maintaining unity. And, and so they all go together. And so if a church member is not committed to walking with humility and gentleness and patience, right, unity is not going to be attainable for that person. So, so the church member who's not committed to humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with others, that church member cannot be a unifying church member. It's not going to happen. Where pride and harshness and irritability reign, the prospect of unity and peace are disrupted and impossible. And so according to Paul, worthy walking means being eager to maintain unity. And so other translations, Paul NIV says, make every effort to keep the unity. The NASB, be diligent to preserve the unity. The King James, endeavor to keep the unity. And so instead of simply saying, be eager to do this, Paul is saying, do all that you can to, to pursue this. Be diligent in pursuing this. Endeavor, strive to maintain unity. So he didn't say, hey, everyone be united. Everyone get along. He says, no, work towards unity. Work towards maintaining the unity of the Spirit. Again, the, the one Spirit of the one Christ has been given to his church, which will create a bond of peace. The one Spirit generates and, and creates this bond of peace that ought to mark every church. And so the specific call is to maintain this unity. And so the, this is maintained, which tells us we didn't create it. So the church doesn't have to create or manufacture unity. So I don't have to come up with this great big vision plan and say, hey, here's our church. Who wants to be part of this? I don't have to create or manufacture unity. Unity has been created by Christ and his spirit. And so a, a local church that, want, that wants to, to be, be walking worthy of the calling is simply say, hey, we're about what Christ is about. And if you're about Christ, you should find a part in this church. We don't have to manufacture it. That, that's freeing to me as a, as, a, as a pastor. I don't have to create this great grand scheme and, and advertise and flash it on our sign and say, hey, look, next new big thing here. No. The church is united by the Spirit. And so every Christian who's, who's been given the Spirit ought to be united and ought to work together in unity because it's already been done. It's already been established. And so a healthy church member is eager to maintain unity. He works to maintain, she works to prioritize this, the oneness of the body. So this is the call of every Christian. And so last, last question that we're going to go to or answer is, how do we maintain this unity? How, how is this maintained? So, so I got it. It's every Christian's call. It's every church member's call. It's been established by Christ through his spirit. Got it. How do I, what do I need to do? So that's, that's section three. How do you maintain unity? Well, since all Christians are called to maintain the unity of the body, it means that every local church should be unified. Hopefully you've seen that. Unity is, or at least ought to be, part of the DNA of every local church, which assumes that every local church is filled with members who are eager to maintain that unity. Now, unfortunately, that has not always been the case um, at every church. It hasn't always been the case at this church. Disunity will always seek to grow in the local church. Right? And so, so part of part of as we're establishing local churches in a fallen world, disunity is always going to be seeking to grow. 
So, so there's no church on this planet that is unified as much as it ought to be. I, I just want to give you some hope there. And maybe you think, well, wait, we are really disunified. We have no hope. No, every church is going to be disunified to some extent. Right? Our aim is to move towards unity, but that's never going to be perfectly accomplished until we have the perfect leader, right? which isn't going to be the, the guy that comes after me. Right? It's not me, but it's, it's when Christ returns. That's when the church will be perfectly unified. And so until then, our aim is unity, but, but we recognize we, we're always going to fall short but we still pursue to maintain this unity and to, to see it in practice on every, in every aspect of our church life. And so every local church, right, as, as we've gathered, we're constantly sending a message. Every local church gathering, we are, and down the street and across town and across the country and across the world, every local church is sending a message and is either saying we're united and in, in, in the midst of our differences, we are pursuing our united purpose, or it's saying we're not united and there are issues bigger that divide us than what should unite us. And so, so every church is either saying we're united or we're divided. Our church is, is either united or divided. Our church is either maintaining unity or it's not. And when you have a local church that is moving towards division is proclaiming we are divided and is sending a false message about who Christ is. So see, it, it, I, this is significant. This, and, and all of this is so that we recognize as a church member, division is not, has no place here. When a church is, is, is moving towards division, it is saying something about Christ. Fox Hill Road Baptist Church moving away from unity is telling the Fox Hill area, is telling Hampton, is telling Virginia something about Christ which is not true. It is saying Christ is divided because we as followers are, are, are moving away from one another. And that's an anti-gospel. That, is, that should never be the testimony of a church. That, that's why Paul says if someone's creating division... Kick them out of the church. There's no place for that. And that's why I, I am happy to tell people if, if they cannot stay in this church without creating division, they should leave. The, the reputation of the church is too great. A divided church is, a, is not a church because it sends a false message about who Christ is. A divided church says we are not one. I'm one with these people, but not those people in my church. I'm one with these people, not those. We're divided. That's what, that, that's, what a, that's what a divided church proclaims, that Christ is divided. Whereas the reality is, Christ has made us one. Christ himself says, I died so that there might be peace. Christ says, my death on the cross was for the explicit purpose of making what was once divided one again to tear down hostility and division and to make one body. And so when we pursue disunity, we are undoing what Christ has done by his death on the cross. It is no small thing. Division has no place in the church. And so pursuing unity, maintaining unity is not optional. It's essential. It's required. And so how, how do we do this? 
as individual members? Well, the first thing that the, the unifying church member does is the unifying church member pursues holiness. The, the unifying church member pursues his or her own spiritual well-being. We, we pursue as individuals Christ-likeness. We strive for the development and the growth of Christ-like character in our own personal lives. And so if upon hearing me say every Christian, every member of this church is called to, to work towards unity, to maintain unity, if, if you immediately think, oh, I know who needs to hear this, right? If, if that's your initial thought, you're missing the point. Right? Now, now, we should get there eventually. That should be a thought. If, if someone comes to your mind, you ought to see that as a God-given sign to, to in love address that, right? So I don't want to say that that shouldn't be a thought, but if that's your first thought, You've missed the point. The first thought is, is you. Point at yourself, you, me. As we consider how to maintain unity, we introspectively ask ourselves, how am I pursuing my calling? I'm called to do this as a member of this church. And I have room to grow. You have room to grow. Right? We all have room to grow in this. And so we all are in need of spiritual growth, of pursuing spiritual health. We're all in process, and, and so we ought not to be surprised when we trend towards division, when we find ourselves being tempted to be frustrated or irritated or mad or, or self-righteous at others with, with conflict in the body. That is our natural drift. Right? We, we don't pursue this naturally. We're called to maintain this. We're called to pursue it. We must strive for it. If this came naturally, number one, churches would be more unified. But number two, Paul would not exhort us to pursue this. He commands it because it doesn't come natural. And so the way this text addresses us is simply by forcing us to examine ourselves. In what ways am I personally eagerly maintaining unity in this body? Or from the other perspective, in what ways am I contributing to disunity or undermining the unity of of this body? I mean, and these, these are questions we ought to be asking ourselves. So, so, so ask yourself, am I quick to get angry? Am I generally proud or arrogant? Am I impatient? Am I lacking in forbearing love? Do I assume the best? Right? And, and not just in general, you ought not to consider these in general, but you ought to consider these in specifically in your church relationships. I'm not going to tell you to look to your left or right, but you know who's sitting around you. You know people of this church. Think about the, the worst relationship that you have in this church. Do you assume the best about that person? When you hear something about that person, is your first thought, oh, they always do that. Right? Well, how do you think about the other members of this church? Because you personally are called to maintain unity in their ways that we subtly undermine unity. And so all these things, so all these questions, if we're honest, we, we all struggle with them to, to a degree, one degree or another. But we have to recognize all of these things destroy unity. All of these things, all anger, pride, impatience, lack of love, unforgiveness, gossip, all of these things destroy the church because they destroy its unity. And so as members who are called to walk worthy of our calling, we we cultivate humility. We pursue gentleness. We, we work on bearing with one another in love. And so the call, the first thing that we do is we pursue our own spiritual health. 
We pursue our own spiritual well-being because as I am a mature Christian, as I'm growing in my maturity as a Christian, I'm going to be moving towards one another in these ways with humility and gentleness, with patience and love. And so, so, so the first thing is, is, is an introspective application. I pursue holiness on my own with, with God in his word, in prayer, through, through gathering with other people, through, through working at relationships with others. So that's the first thing. But in addition to, to pursuing personal holiness, Paul, Paul gives so, so, some additional um, categories that we can pursue, and he actually works them out. I'm going to read in a second from, from Ephesians 4 at the end of that chapter. But, but the following three things that, that we're going to look at, and I'm going to just run through these, is, is taming your tongue, is forgiving others, and is loving others. So, so these are just three kind of handles for you to grab onto in, in practically pursuing unity. And so work through these. But, but just listen as Paul. So this is the same, same context of Ephesians 4 and worthy walking. And Ephesians 4, starting verse 25, listen to how he, he describes relationships and, and Christian relating to one another. Verse 25 of, of Ephesians 4, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And so the first thing to be a unifying uh, church member is to tame your tongue or to watch your mouth. Did, did you notice? Speak the truth with his neighbor. Tell the truth. Tell the truth to one another. And, and notice in verse 25 why he says tell the truth. For we are members one of another. And so when I, when I tell the truth, that enables unity because we're one body. We can operate in the realm of truth. But if I'm lying to others, I'm, I'm prohibiting unity. I, I, I'm disallowing a unified body. I'm telling the feet, hey, we don't need you today. And so we speak the truth. Lying to and lying about one another is inappropriate for members of one body. In fact, in this, in this chapter, in, in the second chapter, he talks a lot about gossip. And he talks about how gossip is, 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 a, is a poison to the church. And so you may be thinking, well, we, it says speak the truth with one another. Well, I'm just telling the truth about, about member A to member B. I'm still telling the truth. I'm just, I'm just saying what they did or what they said. Which, I mean, that still counts as gossip in my book, but even, even if I'll, 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 I'll concede that, I would ask, does gossip fit with Ephesians 4.29? And so, so does gossip, which, which I would further define, does talking about someone behind their back, does saying something about someone to others that you wouldn't say to that person, 
Does assuming the worst about someone, does bad-mouthing someone to another church member, does complaining about a church member to another church member, do these things measure up to verse 29 of Ephesians 4? Because Paul says, speak the truth, but he also says in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Gossip is corrupting talk. And so even if you get past the first telling the truth, you don't get past the second corrupting talk. There is talk that is fitting for Christians, that is fitting for every member of the body. And corrupting talk does not fit. Christian speech, all of it, all of it, even, even mental speech, I think goes here, ought to fit in these categories. Good for building up, fitting the occasion, giving grace to those who hear. That is Christian speech. That is talk that is in, that is in accord with, with our calling as Christians. That's talk that is in accord with imitating God and loving others. So, so we ought to speak what is good for building up, what, what is fitting to the occasion, what gives grace to those who hear. Do you give grace words? Do, do, they, do they pleasure the ears of the believer so that they're encouraged by them? Or do you, do you drive them further down their path of discouragement? Yeah, this person always does that. Right? Does it fit the occasion? So it's not enough to teach our kids. Maybe you've heard this. I heard this growing up. It's not enough to teach our kids. If you can't say something nice, then what? Don't say anything at all. That's not enough. That's not what Paul says. That's not Christian because it, it doesn't go far enough. Paul's point isn't simply on preventing corrupting talk, which is what, which is what our moms and dads wanted. If you can't say something nice, don't say, something, don't say anything at all. They just want to prevent corrupt talk. Paul says that's not enough. You, you should prevent that, but you prevent it by, by saying positive talk. Paul's point is to replace corrupting talk with good talk. And so as Christian church members, our talk ought to be good, always. And the church member that's committed to unity talks to others and talks about others with true and wholesome words. And so unity requires taming your tongue, and so as Rainer points out, if you know someone prone to gossip, prone to corrupting talk, your responsibility is not just to ignore it. Yes, you ought to refuse to listen, you ought to refuse to take part, but you still you address it with that person. I mean, here's a quote. This is from page, page 26. He writes, if someone in, in the church begins to share gossip with you, and, and let's be honest, we know gossip when we hear it, if someone in the church begins to share gossip with you, gently, gently rebuke him or her. You don't have to be harsh in your response to them. Kindly say that you would rather not hear any gossip and that you would hope it wouldn't continue to spread. He writes, you can be a unifier in your church with those simple words. And so, so, so the, the onus is on us as individual members. Gossip doesn't spread without listening ears. We must let people know that Foxhill Road Baptist Church, we don't have ears that listen to gossip. And, and when that's clear, the gossipers will go elsewhere. We must not let them hear. And so we have a responsibility. 
to, to guard our tongue, to watch our mouths, but also to help our brother and sister gently in love to watch their mouths. The, the last, last two points, and I've grouped them together, forgiving others and loving others. In fact, loving others is, is, is the, the banner under which all of this goes. So unity, pursuing, maintaining unity, falls under our call to love others. Love is the priority. I mean, in, in John 13, Jesus talking to his disciples, he says, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus doesn't say, hey, the world's gonna know that you're a Christian if you love them. That's not what he says. He says, they're gonna know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And notice that that's different. I do think Christian love to the, those outside the church is informative to others, but he's saying that, that more informative to the outside world is how Christians relate to one another. And we know this because of the, the negative side, that lack of love, or, or the negative uh, traction that lack of love gets with the outside world. Right? Ask someone to come to church. Oh, churches can't get along. I, 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 was, I was burned by a church. My, my family was cast out, or this happened, or this happened. I'm done with the church. And so one small instance of division, people say, well, the whole church is corrupt, is split, is divided. And Jesus says, love for one another says that I'm a follower of Jesus. And so it's a mark of the Christian love. A church that is walking together in unity is a church that's filled with members who are committed to unity, and members who are committed to unity are those who love others and forgive others. Right? That, that's, that's the cultural context. That's, that's the DNA of church member relationships. Yes, there's difficulties. Yes, there's frustrations. Yes, there's conflict. Right? I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not envisioning us in perpetual bonfire unison kumbaya. Right? That, that's not what I'm saying. So I, I know that that's not realistic. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be tension. But the, 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 the warp and woof of a local church and the relationships within that are that of love and forgiveness, of bearing with one another. That's how we ought to relate to one another. Every one of us ought to relate to every other one of us in that way. A healthy church is dependent upon healthy church members. If you have a divided, angry, mean, gossiping church, it's because the members are not spiritually mature or healthy. I mean, that's the connection that, that I want you to see. A healthy church is dependent on its healthy members. And in fact, in some cases, when you have divided, angry, mean, gossiping churches, it's because the members are not even Christians. And it ought not to be that way. And so as we, as a local church, as we aim for health, as we aim for unity... The best thing for, for me to do, the best thing for you to do is to pursue our own spiritual well-being, to pursue godliness and to pursue it in our relationships with one another because a, a church is unified corporately, unity is maintained corporately when individuals pursue it. And so a, a, good, a good litmus test, I mean, I ought to ask myself this, you ought to ask yourself this, but a good litmus test for your relationship with Christ is your relationship with others. And so, so how are you relating to Christ now? Is it non-existent? Have you communed with him at all this year? I mean, we're only 19 days in. Have you met with Christ this year? Have you spent time in his word? Have you, have you cast your cares upon him? 
Have you, have you shared your struggles with, with one of his other people and asked them to pray for you? How are you relating to Christ now? And I get it. Times get hard. Seasons are challenging. But if my relationship with Christ is non-existent, my relationship with others are going to reveal that and show that. And so if I'm bitter, if I'm angry, if I'm irritable, if I'm unloving with others, it's normally because I'm not relating well to Christ. And so what I want you to do, what I want me to do as a church member who wants to commit to the unity of this body is I want to pursue Christ. And as I pursue him and as I'm transformed into his likeness and his image, that's going to overflow in my, into my relationship with others. And so I, my prayer is that we as a body and individually as members of this body might pursue and maintain the unity that has been established here. Well, let's, let's pray as we close.